for Brother Colin's fourth class. We'll call upon Brother Peter Lanthier to lead us in reading James chapter 4. Now, please to call upon our Brother Colin to deliver his fourth class on the epistles of James. And this fourth class is entitled Friendship and Enmity. Well, brethren and sisters, we have progressed somewhat through the epistle of James. And I'm sure that we are finding out that James really does give to us lessons of a very practical nature. And that's going to continue into James 4. And we don't really propose to get terribly far in James chapter 4. But what we do want to do is to investigate what is behind James chapter 4, rather like we looked at James chapter 3 and verse 1 in our last class together because it is very, very easy to overread the depth and the content of what the writers of the New Testament have to say. So it is, of course, in the Old Testament. It is not very easy for us, brethren and sisters, to let God tell us what he wants to tell us. We nearly always go to the Bible, especially after we've been in the truth for a few years, we nearly always go there anticipating what it's going to say. And therefore our mind is not even in the right gear to accept what's there. It might not in that place say what we think it's going to say. It's very, very difficult for us to be open-minded and to see a train of thought as it is presented to us in the Bible. But they will be there and there will really be secrets and gems that we can uncover by just a little bit of thought. We do not have to be Rhodes Scholars to study the Bible. We don't even have to use a lot of concordances to study the Bible. Don't ever get the idea, brethren and sisters, that the only way to study the Bible is to get out large volumes of whatever it might be in lexicons and concordances and all those sorts of things. You don't have to do that. Now, that is a part of the study of the Bible. That's true. But you don't have to do that to study the Bible. We just need to read it very, very carefully and to let let it tell us what it wants to say. So when we read in James and chapter 4 and verse 1 where James asks a very pertinent question, he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? And here is an occasion where it's very useful to use a concordance (coughs) because the word for lusts there is not the normal New Testament word for lust. That occurs many places in the New Testament, the normal word for lust, but this is not the normal one. So he's not just saying that these ideas of wars and fightings among you have come from the basic lusts of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. He's saying something a little bit different in this particular context because that word is only used three other times in the New Testament and it is the Greek word H-E-D-O-N-E, hedoni. And we get our English word hedonism from that. And that really means pleasure-seeking. Now, we wouldn't think that in the days of James that the seeking of pleasure would have, been, would have opened many doors for the people in his day and generation. 
Many of them were slaves. Many of them were people who had no will of their own and who just put in extended hours for their own masters. And here he is saying, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even from your own pleasures that war in your members? There's never ever, brethren and sisters, a position where we cannot indulge in pleasure-seeking. We may not be able to execute our ideas, but that doesn't mean to say that we can't be involved in pleasures or raptures or things in the mind. And it is the mind where the battle will be won or lost. It's not when the $100 bill gets into our hand that the problem is able to be dealt with. It's only able to be dealt with when it's going on in here. And it's got to be rejected as out of hand. And these are the ideas now that James is going to bring to our attention. He says, You are able, whether you are rich or poor, to indulge in a form of pleasure-seeking. And it was manifesting itself, unfortunately, among the brethren and sisters of those days, that there were wars and fightings among them. And some of them were obviously, as James says, fulfilling a pleasurable experience in that. Now we might say that's very hard to understand, but is it? Is it very hard to understand, brethren and sisters? Lining up behind some leader who we may have exalted above his position? Does that not cause us to in some way, sometimes, to fulfil a pleasurable instinct? And might it not be that we just have no other scope to fulfil our desire for pleasures? And so here are situations and the other places where this word is used in the word of God in the New Testament indicate to us what that really means. For example, we've got, them, got it used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. We won't turn these up. We've got it used in Luke 8 verse 14. The pleasures of this world encroaching upon the good seed that was thrown into the heart. And in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 is the other occasion where this is, where this is recorded in the New Testament. And the basic idea of it is to have pleasure or to riot or to be soft and effeminate. That's the basic idea of the word, conveying the idea of some form of luxurious living, whether it's in actual fact, physical means, or whether it's in the mind is a result of how we see the thing at the time. So James goes on to say, he says, and here's where he uses the normal word for lust in the, in the New Testament, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and ye receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your hedonism. And the other Greek word that is used in verse 1 is used again in verse 3. Now then, James wants to get to the root of what has been going on in the ecclesial world of that time. There are very obviously some serious things that are at issue, aren't there? They fight and war. 
They desire to kill. They do all sorts of things. And they do it asking God to back up their requests. And we might say, well, what sort of people were these? They were no different to us. Not one whit different, brothers and sisters, were these people to ourselves. And now we're going to have a fairly careful look at verse 4 to see from where verse 4 is derived and to see if we can't see ourselves in the first four verses of this chapter. Because with a little bit of looking, we will see ourselves. We're not going to be like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and goes away and forgets what manner of man he was and imagines that he is a whole lot better than he ever looked when he saw that reflection. We are going to look into the perfect law of liberty. We're going to see what reflection there is of us. We're going to admit that and we're going to see another reflection that comes from that word which is the reflection of God. We're not going to forget what manner of man we are but we're going to try to superimpose upon that picture the image and the likeness of God. So James says to us in verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. But unfortunately, unfortunately, that's not what he said. He simply said, ye adulteresses. Now why did he say, ye adulteresses? Well, we've been called by a name, haven't we? We've been called by the name of God. And if we are called by God's name, then he must either be a husband or a father or both. So that when that name is called upon us, with him is in the capacity of a husband toward us, having given that position, of course, to his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we can't really be adulterers. The only thing we can possibly be would be adulteresses because we're espoused to one husband. Therefore, if we, being the prospective bride of Christ, having espoused ourselves to him, having been begotten by the word of truth, we can't possibly be anything else in the relationship than an adulteress, if we go aside to any other way. So James then says, Ye adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now we could go into all sorts of scriptures from that verse, brethren and sisters. All sorts of verses right throughout the length and breadth of the Bible to show what James is thinking about. And we're going to do that to a certain extent by first of all going right back to the very first place in the Bible from which James is quoting here in this verse. There's only four places in the New Testament and two of them are in the same passage but there's only four places in the New Testament where the word enmity occurs. And it's in Ephesians 2 twice, it's in Romans chapter 8 once and it's here in James chapter 4. Now that's a very surprising word, isn't it? Because when we go right back to the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3, we meet the word there. 
and it's in a very interesting context which will throw tremendous light on what James is talking about in James 4 and verse 4. So in Genesis chapter 3 and at verse 15, this is what God said. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's our word enmity. Now why does it occur in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15? To whom was God speaking and why did he say it? Well, he was speaking to a being, a creature named the serpent. That's who he said it to. He said it to the serpent. But about whom did he say the enmity would be applicable? Well, verse 15, if we read it very carefully, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. So there we have a picture of the woman and the serpent standing before the Elohim and they are saying, the Elohim are saying, that God has begun a warfare between the serpent on the one hand and the woman on the other. He also says in the next line that that hostility which is mutual will continue between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, brethren and sisters, we need to be very, very careful how we outline that verse because God does not say to the man that there will be enmity between you, Adam, and the serpent. He does not say there will be enmity between the seed of man and the seed of the serpent. He only says there will be enmity between the woman and the serpent and between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. And if we analyse further the background to James chapter 4 and verse 4, we will find out that God never promises seed to Adam. The only thing that Adam gets told, verse 17 to 19, is that he will labour in the sweat of his brow and he'll go back into the dust from whence he came. That's the only thing that is promised to Adam. Why then does God say, I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent? And that it will also be between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And yet he doesn't say that enmity will be between man and the serpent or between the man's seed and the serpent's seed. Why does he not say that? Well, the answer lies in the way in which the Elohim have brought Adam and Eve to the bar of judgment and made a judgment on them. You see, brothers and sisters, if the enmity is going to be between the seed of the woman but not the seed of the man and the seed of the serpent, we are being told that the seed of the woman will be the son of God because the woman would not be able to have a son without the man except by the interference of God. 
So the answers that the man and the woman have given in Genesis chapter 3 are very, very important. And the answer of the man is very much in harmony with what we have seen in James chapter 1. Let's see what God says to the man as he calls him forth now in his state of knowledgeable nakedness. And the Lord God, verse 9, says to Adam, Where art thou? And he said, Who told thee that thou... Uh, rather, Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And that, brethren and sisters, expresses the truth in fact, but it doesn't lay the blame where it belongs. You see, what Adam was saying was that you are the reason why I failed. Because you gave to me a woman who you told me was going to be a helpmeet for me and she hasn't turned out to be that. And that is precisely, brethren and sisters, what the man meant. So what was he doing? He was blaming God for his falling into error. But then when the, when the Elohim turned to the woman and the Elohim say to the woman, what is this that thou hast done? She said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And the woman, brethren and sisters, not only said the truth in fact, she admitted that she was responsible. She did not cast the blame onto the serpent. She took it herself. And those two confessions of those two people, brothers and sisters, both saying the truth in fact, demonstrate a basic difference in the way that God made those two people. And you'll always find that's true to life. Almost always. That a man finds it harder to confess what he's done than a woman does. And that's true. That is absolutely true. And the man, therefore, is not promised seed because he's not a person of truth. They both were, went astray, that's true. But the woman is going to have the seed, that is the seed of God, because she was a woman of truth. And the woman has always stood for the truth. And the man, in that case, stands only for the things that he was promised. The woman wasn't promised that she would eat bread in the sweat of her face. She was promised that she would have a seed, but it would be outside of the will of man, where the man was only promised sweat of his face, eating bread until he goes back into the dust. He's not a man of truth, because the wages of sin is death. And so they're given an opportunity to express their own minds before the Elohim in judgment and the woman comes up to the test, but the man failed. Therefore then, brethren and sisters, why does God say 
I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman because the woman was a woman of truth. There always will be enmity or hostility between the thinking of the flesh and the thinking of the truth. And we'll go to Romans chapter 8 in a moment and demonstrate that what we are saying is absolutely true according to the inspiration of the Apostle Paul. So what have we got here in Genesis 3 verse 15? We have got a woman who stands for the truth and we've got a serpent who stands for that which is wrong and God says, I am going to put enmity in between them. There will be mutual hostility between those parties until in the seed of them both there will be a war that culminates in a victory. And that victory will be when the seed of the woman destroys the seed of the serpent and therefore the serpent has no more power. We know, of course, that that happened in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in the only seed of the woman who has ever lived. Because none of us, brethren and sisters, are seed of the woman. Because the seed of the woman has not got a human father. But the seed of the woman had a divine father. We can be connected with the seed of the woman, but we're not the seed of the woman as promised in Genesis chapter 3. Now let's come over to Romans chapter 8, where again this word enmity is used, a very important word. And we will see what Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 was speaking about. It says to us in verse 5, and I just ask the liberty to paraphrase this in a way that will be more readily understood by us. Follow along in verse 5. And the scripture says, They that are after the flesh do think about the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit think about the things of the spirit. 4 verse 6. To think about the things of the flesh is death. What did Adam get in Genesis 3? He got death. What was he doing? He was thinking about the flesh, obviously. But to think about the things of the spirit is life and peace. Because the thinking of the flesh, here's our word, is enmity against God is enmity against God. What did God place the enmity between in Genesis 3 verse 15? It was the woman on one hand and the serpent on the other. So what do they stand for? The one stands for the thinking of the spirit and the other for the thinking of the flesh. There's enmity between them. So Paul says, to think about the things of the flesh is enmity against God. Because the thinking of the flesh is not subject to God's law but not only that it can't be subject to God's law. The thinking of the flesh, says Paul cannot be subject to God's law. It's not a matter that it won't it's not a matter that it doesn't it's a matter that it can't. And where did that originate? Well it originated in a beast, didn't it? 
a beast that is totally unanswerable to the law of God. And you go back into Genesis chapter 3, brethren and sisters, and you'll find that when God asked Adam what he'd done, he said, he asked Eve what she'd done, and she told him. And he just turned to the serpent and he said, because you have done this, he didn't even give him a chance to answer. Because a serpent can't answer to God. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that that kind of thinking is fine in an animal. But that kind of thinking in a man is another matter altogether. And that kind of thinking just simply cannot hear God's law. Now then, brethren and sisters, verse 8 says to us, and it reinforces our view of the kind of thinking that was produced in the serpent, so then they that are in the flesh, that is, so they that think about the flesh, cannot please God. It's not that they won't, it's not that they don't, it's that they cannot please God. Now when we come over into James chapter 4, and we'll be able to start, therefore, brethren and sisters, to see what James is really telling us about. And he will be able to outline for us what he says is enmity against God. Is enmity against God going to the races? Is enmity against God going to the local dance? We'd have no trouble answering that, would we? We'd have no trouble answering that at all. But watch what God, what James does here in verse 4. He says, Ye adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And he's obviously quoting from Genesis chapter 3, isn't he? What's the issue of Genesis chapter 3? Is it actually doing something? Is it actually pursuing a course of riotous living or pleasure? No, it's a kind of thinking. It's a kind of thinking. And we look at the world, brothers and sisters, and we say, oh, we're not indulging in what the world does. But what's going on up here? That's the issue. And where did this statement that Paul uses, ye adulteresses, come from? Well, that comes from a place in the Old Testament too. And we'd like to examine that for a few moments in Numbers chapter 5. It's a very pertinent place, brethren and sisters, and it is one of those things in the Scriptures which sometimes we find very hard to understand. And in verses 11 to 14, basically, we have the ideas that are presented in a situation which may or may not even have arisen in Israel. So verse 11 of Numbers chapter 5 says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner. 
Look at all those qualifications that apply to this situation that's going to be laid before us. This situation is when a spirit of jealousy arose in a husband and the preconditions were that she may have lain with a man carnally but it was hid from the eyes of her husband nobody revealed the secret she was defiled but there was no witness and there was no fruit and the man just had a feeling of jealousy arising in him because he was afraid of the infidelity of his wife. See how secretly it's been done? See how nobody knows about what's gone on between those two people? That is, if in fact the thing had actually been done. And here we've got a situation, brethren and sisters, where a man could bring his wife and put her through an extremely humiliating situation and yet he himself can get off absolutely free. Whether she's innocent or whether she's guilty, he gets off absolutely free. And then we start to remember, brothers and sisters, that this is not just given on the husband and wife level. It's given because Yahweh, our maker, is our husband. Who's going to expect him or suspect him of infidelity to his promises to us? Would anybody dare do that? Is it even possible that he should be able to be placed under suspicion of infidelity? Do we blame him like Adam did? Do we blame him justly like Adam did not? Well, brethren and sisters, this is what is being spoken about in James chapter 4. It's altogether something that nobody else knows about. And it is therefore practised in the mind. And James comes right out and he says, you know, whether God can see it or whether man can see it, I'm cross out that bit about God, whether man can see it or not, brothers and sisters, if it is a secret indulgence in the thinking of the flesh, it's spiritual adultery. And God is well equipped to give to us the whole law of liberty, his whole counsel whereby we can see into the innermost recesses of our hearts. And we know there's things like that in life, don't we? We just know that's true. That there are things that we would never do if brother or sister so-and-so knew. And when we teach our little children that high, that God sees and knows and hears all things, we get up to that high and we forgot. We forget what we tell our children. And God says through James's pen, he says, what I want you to understand is that friendship with the world is not just overt collusion with them. It happens in the mind all the time. And if we go then to the second of Corinthians and at chapter 11, we will find that the Apostle Paul has very much to say about this matter. In the second of Corinthians and at chapter 11 and at verse 1 he says, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me because I've got a spirit of jealousy 
That's what Paul is saying. I've got a spirit of jealousy. And it's a godly jealousy. And our minds go right back into the Old Testament scriptures to a number of places where Yahweh proclaims himself as a jealous ale. He's not trying to keep somebody away from us, brethren and sisters, like our jealousy means, because our interests mightn't be served. He's jealous over our minds. He wants them protected and hedged about. He doesn't want them wandering out of the way. He wants us to fix our minds on him. So Paul says, I am jealous over you Corinthian believers with a godly jealousy because I have espoused you unto one husband so that I may present you as a non-impregnated virgin to Christ because there's a new mind formed in you. I want that mind to be clear. I want it to be pure. I want it to be undefiled. But he says, I fear, lest by any means as the serpent tricked Eve and completely sold her down the stream through her subtlety, that your minds may even just be corrupted from the singleness, as the word should be, that is in Christ. And what's James been telling us about? He's been telling us about a man who is driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the law. God is a singular person. He's got a singular intention. He will give singly to those who ask singly. And there is a unit, there is a whole. There is something, says the Apostle Paul, by which I have reproduced after after the kind of Christ in your minds. And I don't want to see that impregnated by anything else. There is a little embryo that is growing in your mind. It's single. It's just one thing. Keep it that way. Because I'm very jealous over that. And if we were to maintain, brethren and sisters, that kind of jealousy over one another, we would be a different bunch of people than we are. But sometimes we're afraid. He won't understand. She won't know what I'm trying to do. And we create in ourselves very great difficulties because sometimes when we do go in a very wonderfully concerned manner for our brother or our sister, all we get is rebuff. Maybe we go with an overbearing attitude. Maybe we are taunting and ridiculing, chiding people when we do what we do. We may do it that way. That's not the way of God. If we were to understand that way, brothers and sisters, we would have much, much more success with one another. But the thing that it does depend on is a singleness in Christ. And if we actually believed that when our brother or our sister was going to come to us or approached us, that they did have that singleness of intention, we might receive things a little better too, mightn't we? So now when we turn back to James... Maybe we should go to Hebrews chapter 12 just before we go to James. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 11. It's really a rundown of what we've been considering out of James. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. But if the right goal is marked out, Afterward it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. 
Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. What is James talking about in James chapter 4? He's talking about wars and fightings among them. Where did they come from? They came from hidden and secret places. They ruined that wholesomeness and that singleness which is Christ. And there was just a little root of bitterness somewhere in the meeting that came up and it was able to completely embroil the meeting. And he likens that, brethren and sisters, look at verse 16. He says, verse 15, We need to look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest we see a root of bitterness springing up in our own hearts that trouble you, and that evil root of bitterness can grow and grow and grow. And to what does he liken that? He says, lest there be any fornicator. A fornicator. What's he linking it to? He's linking it to Numbers chapter 5. It's all intimately connected with James chapter 4. That here is a situation where there is a fornicator or a profane person because they've got a root of bitterness springing up that troubles the meeting. And what's Esau? Esau is the kind of person who for one morsel of bread would sell his birthright. And here we see, brothers and sisters, the great power of James's words when we turn to them now and we kind of get the background upon which they have been written. And what is James doing? He's gathering together the incident of Genesis 3 verse 15 and all the things that surround it. He's gathering together the ideas that are contained in Numbers chapter 5 and he is saying friendship with the world is not just overt connections with them. It is not just connections with them in our actions, it is connections in the mind. That's where the battle is won or lost. What then do we feed our minds? Do we feed our minds with the thinking of the flesh? Or do we feed it with the thinking of the spirit? When we feed it with the thinking of the flesh, brothers and sisters, however innocent we might think it is, God is jealous about that. He's expended a tremendous amount of energy and love and grace and hard work to get us to that singleness that is in Christ. And so may have many of our brethren and sisters. And we go and fill that mind with the thinking of the flesh. No wonder it arouses the jealousy of God who is a jealous ale, not because he wants to see us go under, but because he knows exactly what is best for us. And the thinking of the flesh, says the scripture, is enmity with God. Don't think, brethren and sisters, that we can indulge in it and feed in it, even though we do nothing about it in outward action, that we will ever be in the kingdom of God. It just cannot be. Because the thinking of the flesh is at enmity with God. And the thinking of the flesh 
brings us into fellowship, not with God, but with the world. And it's the secret things. The things that we know we would just like to hang on to as a legacy of our old life in the world. We just love to hang on to them. We have got to let them go. Whatever they may be, brethren and sisters, they might just be a root of bitterness that springs up and that troubles us and causes us to be like Esau, who for just one morsel of bread sold his birthright. And that's the exhortation that James is giving to us in this chapter. So we are are adulteresses. And sometimes we don't know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. We need to remember that there is a very real way in which we can be completely involved in the thinking of the flesh and yet not do anything that appears to be wrong. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Jews of his day? It might be as well. I've just forgotten how much time we've got back there, Brother Jim. Three minutes. Well, to conclude this little section, let's turn back to John chapter 8. And I think, brethren and sisters, we will see just how powerful an exhortation it is for us in this particular matter. In John chapter 8, we are reading about a discussion that ensued between Jesus and the Jews of his day as to whose relatives they were. And there's only one way in the Bible that really discerns or defines relationships with other people and it's the way we think if we want to be in the family of God we learn to think like our father if we want to be in the family of the world we have no problems whatsoever we find ourselves to be completely at one with them all we have to do is get rid of what we might think are the shackles of the Bible that's all we have to do And we're absolutely at one with anything and everything that happens outside. Now, in this chapter, as we have said, Jesus and the Jews are talking about their relationships. And they said, we're the seed of Abraham. And he said, you know, what you need to be released from your bondage is the truth. And they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. We're the sons of Abraham. Can't you see our lineage? We've got a lineage that goes right back to Abraham, the faithful friend of God. What else do we need? So in verse 40, he says, or verse 39, he says, If you were Abraham's children, you would follow that out in the way of life you lead. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, But we're not born of fornication. We have even one father, he's God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. And you can almost feel, brethren and sisters, in the mind of Christ, the frustration rising. As these people just don't seem to get or even, be a, or even are able to get on the way of thinking that Jesus is expressing. And he says in verse 43, Why do ye not understand my speech? And look at the answer. Even because ye cannot 
hear my word. Do you know what he was calling them, brothers and sisters? He was calling them serpents. He was calling them people who are totally given over to the thinking of the flesh. Because the thinking of the flesh cannot please God. It cannot hear the word. That's what he's saying to them. Now you think how religious those people were who he is accusing of being serpent in their minds. They were the most religious people on the face of the earth. We know what they did. We know what we do. I wonder if it just might be able to be said of us that it doesn't matter what we do, we are serpents. What does God think of our innermost thoughts and intentions? That's the issue that we've got to come to grips with, brethren and sisters. Are we merely adulteresses? Are we merely showing that we have an identity of mind with everything that happens out there, no matter how restrained we may appear to be? We might just have an identity with that mind that runs riot out there. And that's what Jesus was saying about those people. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. And nobody who indulges in it, brothers and sisters, can ever expect to be in the kingdom of God. Therefore we say with James the writer here, we do not think that the scripture saith in vain that the spirit dwelleth that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. We've all got it. We're smitten with it. And we need to thank our God that not only has he told us what's wrong with us, and there is plenty of things wrong with us, he's told us how to rectify the matter. 